My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity One on One. Today, my guest on the show will be Michael Fossil. And I have to say that we are visiting Michael in his lovely garden. And I thought it would provide a very appropriate uh, and perhaps a little revealing setup for our guest today. So thanks for having us over today, Michael. Thanks, Nick. Nice to have you and the crew here together. Fantastic. Uh, it's, it's been a long time coming and I've been looking forward to it for a while. So let me... And thanks for sharing the garden with me. I love sharing it with people, so... Oh, yeah, and, and I enjoying, I'm enjoying being shared with because oh. it, it's really a nice experience. So let me ask you this, Michael. For those of our viewers and listeners who may not be familiar with you and your work, can you perhaps introduce yourself in a few sentences and tell us what you do? Um, I have an MD, PhD, professor of medicine for almost three decades. Um, and I was the first one who ever put out I published articles in a book on the telomere theory of aging, explaining how aging works. Um, I have not gotten involved except peripherally in the research, and I'm about to because it's been frustrating that it's taking so long. Um, I have still have the only textbook out on the topic. Um, that's me. I used to be the executive editor of American Aging Association. Uh, a lot of things. And a gardener. So tell me then, what's your biggest dream? What's the major goal of your work? What's the best case scenario? Uh, for me, it's a matter of, I mean, it sort of sounds trite, but um, it's, it, it has to do with me as a physician. I've never been interested in aging as a, as a philosophical question, what causes aging? I don't care. What I care about is being able to intervene and make people's lives better. Um, to put it pointedly, reversing or preventing Alzheimer's. Um, likewise, osteoarthritis, atherosclerotic disease, because these are things I see every day of my life or have as a practicing physician. Um, so always for me, it's been a practical question, not a philosophical one. Mm -hmm. And where does the gardening part fit into this thing? Is it, I wonder, does it say something about who you are and what you do? Yeah, but I leave it to you to figure out what. I, you know, for me, it has something to do with the aesthetics. I, I sculpt, I write, I garden, I paint. It's um, you know, it's creating something that's a little bit better than it was before, particularly with patient care, trying to make people's lives better. You know, patients never come in because they want a diagnosis. They come in because they want to be made better, and the diagnosis may be part of that. And they didn't come in because they wanted a shot of it. Sometimes what they want is an ear. Sometimes they want a shoulder to cry on. Sometimes they want the disease cured. But they want you to make things better. So I think that's the same thing with my gardening. It's trying to make it better. Mm -hmm. So... Let, let me let me ask you about a, sort of a basic definitional question here that would perhaps help us ground our discussion, and that is aging. What is aging in your opinion? How do we define aging? Any number of ways. And for people personally, it's things falling apart, things getting worse, things that hurt, things that scare them, forgetting your wife's name, uh, you know, knees that hurt every morning. Uh, that's very personal. Um, for me, as a, as, a, as a physician or as a, a PhD, it's a matter of changes in gene expression. Um, 
if I look at the difference between any two cells in your body, the difference is not that they have different genes or that one is damaged. The difference between my ear and my heart is a pattern of gene expression. And this is exactly what's going on in aging. The difference between me at age three and me at age 63 is a changed pattern of gene expression. So that's where aging is. But as I say, my question is a practical one, which is how do I fix it? So my question is not, what's the pattern that changed? No, the question is, how do I fix it? How do I reset things to make um, Alzheimer's, for example, not occur? Mm -hmm. Let me actually give our audience a little quote from your website to be even more specific than that, where you say, quote, my major goal is to take our current knowledge of telomer telomerase and cell senescence into human clinical testing as the single most promising point of intervention in human aging and age-related disease. That's true. And I'll give you an example of this. Uh, if, if I have heart disease, I could get a, uh, a stent put in. I could be put on um, statins. I could have my blood pressure controlled. I could get a heart transplant, all of which you could argue is a treatment for heart disease. Um, most of those are expensive. They have side effects, they are painful, they have risks, they have lots of problems. I'd like to find the single most effective point of intervention, not just any intervention, but something that is effective, safe, cheap. And I think that that single most effective point of intervention is to re-extend telomeres, not because telomeres cause aging. They don't. But they seem to be a key point where I can get in and change things. Again, if I could give you a whole body transplant, that would work. I can't. Mm -hmm. But can I reset the pattern of gene expression so that your body is healthier? I think we can. The evidence supports it, but we're yet to test it in humans effectively. Okay, so the, the question here is divided into two parts. One is feasibility, the other is desirability. So let me Good. take on the desirability part first. Most common argument against intervention would be something like aging is natural. It is normal for us to age and die and allow space for the new and the young. And this is how the world works. This is how God created us. And we should not play God. We should not interfere. Even if we don't believe in God, it is in the natural end. So whether you have nature or God, this is how things are. And we should just let them be the way they are. What do you say to Let that? Let me give you three answers. The first is sort of the tempting answer, which is to say, oh, it's natural, but so is uh, locked jaw and so is pneumonia and so is falling off a cliff and getting stomped on by a mammoth. I could do that. But instead, I'm going to give you two real stories. The first is Mrs. Johnson. This is 20 years ago. And my first book is out and I'm on Good Morning America and local media come in and they want to interview an older person about aging. So I introduce them to Mrs. Johnson, who's come to see me for pneumonia in my hospital. And she agrees to be interviewed. And he says to her, tell me something, Mrs. Johnson, if Dr. Fossil had a pill that reverse aging, would you take it? And she said, sort of a voice like this, she says, no, I'd let nature take its course, <laughs> which makes sense. But then I said, Mrs. Johnson, I noticed when I looked down here, you've got a big scar on your chest. Where'd that come from? She said, well, I had a quadruple bypass. Hmm. <laughs> I said, Mrs. Johnson, I noticed your knuckles are fairly swollen. She said, yes, and the Motrin doesn't cut it. I said, arthritis is driving me crazy. And I said, um, again, Mrs. Johnson, why are you come, why'd you come to the hospital today? She said, you know why I'm here. I've got pneumonia. I think I need to be, oh, oh, I see what you're driving at. Oh, I take the pill. Because aging sounds fine in the abstract, but when it's you with a heart disease, when it's you with the arthritis, when it's you with the pneumonia or the Alzheimer's and so on and so on, that's a different matter. Very few of us 
you know, very few of us these days would have a headache and not think, why don't I get something to get rid of it? Natural is good. Natural childbirth is good until you're the one who can't stand the pain. Alzheimer's is natural. Is it something we should tolerate? Now here's the second kind of an answer to that, and this is the more religious one. Um, I've had people say, uh, are you interfering with, speaking about God's will, there goes a ruby-throated ruby hummingbird out on the marigolds. Um, I've had people say, are you interfering with God's will to change aging? To which my answer is, I have had a five-year-old girl come in on her bicycle hit by a car to my ER for me to, be tr me to treat. But that was God's will. Should I interfere with God's will and try to treat her and save her life? Because literally that's happened. I've had a 41-year-old female comes in, three kids. She's got terminal, it was rectal cancer. Should we let her go? God's will. What if they're older? What if it's a 70-year-old with a heart attack? Where do I draw the line? Because my answer is that if it's God's will, I should let those people die. Then you're welcome to your God. I'll take mine. I'd rather have a compassionate God. And again, this is regardless of whether you're religious or not. I think compassion still is the human response. So my answer is no. To say that you should let nature have its course boils down to not delivering compassionate care and not being human. I like to say, um, you know, it's not a matter of, of God's will. It's more a matter of God's work in some sense, if you want to be religious. And being human is to deliver compassion. Thank you. Yeah, I, I think myself, I personally think we have covered the, the desirability issue very satisfactory but if someone feels otherwise and wants to let it go my heart's my hats off to them it's their choice absolutely yes Fine. and i can i can respect that i can respect mm -hmm. that as as long as they're cognizant of the choice they're making and aren't enforcing it someone else right. entirely absolutely yes but let's talk a little bit about the feasibility here because good question i i recently watched um, a fascinating documentary to be released in the next couple of months for the wider public called The Immortalists, mm -hmm. where the two main protagonists are uh, two friends of yours, perhaps, or colleagues of yours anyway, uh, Mr. Bill Andrews mm -hmm. uh, and Aubrey de Grey. And uh, the interesting thing is that one of the other people interested during the, the movie was Mr. Hayflick, who is, who's uh, uh, discovered the Hayflick limit. And he very pointedly during the interview said that association of telomeres with aging is not causation. Right. And therefore, he uh, was not convinced that lengthening the, tel the telomeres would actually resolve the problem. Mm -hmm. what, what do you say to you know, a superstar like that? And I know that he's one of your personal heroes too. I know. I love Len. I get a Christmas card from every year here in Ruth. Um, in fact, I was just talking the other day with him. Um, Len is a hero of mine in a sense because he's the one who went up against the establishment. And the established point of view was back about 60 years ago that uh, aging didn't occur in cells. It occurred between cells. And Len said, yes, it does, and got a lot of flack for that. But he stood his ground and his, his data supported it. Um, Len, though, is still a conservative. I've seen him give a talk where he started off by saying, you can't change human aging, and finished by saying, and so we can change human aging. He comes and goes in some ways. Um, but um, Len was part of the original group with Jaron, who did some of the original work. Now, Jaron got out of all this because it decided that really probably you couldn't do anything about aging, and they focused in on cancer. But they did some of the, the primary work that showed that, in fact, it's not an association. 
what Len would be arguing would be, you could say association, I'd say correlation. Correlation is not, not causation. For example, if I go to the grocery store, I can show that people who buy infant diapers tend not to get heart attacks. Well, it's not because infant diapers are protective, it's because people who buy infant diapers tend to be young people who don't tend to get heart attacks. So it doesn't mean you should go buy infant diapers. <laughs> right. And so the fact that telomere shortening is associated with aging doesn't by itself prove anything. The question would be, what if I reset telomere length? Do I reverse aging? There the answer is yes. The first study was done in 1999, and what we found was that if you change the telomere length in human cells, they begin to look like young cells again, and they act like young cells, and the pattern of gene expression of that are young cells. But as I said even then, you're not just cells. What about tissues? What about organism? So in the next two or three years after that, there were a set of articles looking at tissues. So what you found is, for example, you could take human endothelial tissues that line your coronary arteries that are responsible for most of your heart disease, which kills most of us. And if you reset the telomere length, you can grow what looks like young human endothelial cells again. Tissues can be regrown and reset aging. All right, but what about people? Now, the only study that's looked at that, two of them since that time, I mean, I, back in 96, I predicted it would take us between 10 and 20 years. It took 11 years. In 2007, the study began as an informal study using a telomerase activator orally. And um, what was found in the first article came out now um, three years ago, the second one one year ago. The first study looked at immune function. People have been on some of these, these oral telomerase activators for 6 to 12 months. Um, a lot of them, there was a subset particularly, um, had what looked like rejuvenation of the immune system. That is, their immune system was acting like an immune system was 10 years younger. Interesting. Doesn't prove a lot. Again, nobody went from age 70 to age 40. Didn't happen. But something happened. Second study, as I say, came out last year and looked at uh, HDL, cholesterol, blood pressure, glucose, insulin levels, uh, bone mineral density, a number of other things, homocysteine levels. And again, what you found was there was a significant shift toward a younger pattern in people who took these medications. Now, my best estimate, uh, Bill would say it's about 6%. I'd say about 5%, but same idea, as effective as he and I want them to be. What we want is something that's 100% effective at, for example, preventing or reversing Alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. or osteoarthritis or heart disease in people. Not just a little thing happened, but a lot happened. Not that we wanted to make somebody 70 turn 20, but we want to give them the health of a 20-year-old or 30-year-old. We want them not to have Alzheimer's disease. So we need a more effective way. So my, my argument would be, yes, it's feasible to a degree. And I think it could be more feasible. We need to prove that. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, t I'm totally in support of that, but I'm just thinking from a practical point of view, Alzheimer's sounds to be the really high-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Shouldn't we start at the lower end of the tree with the low-hanging fruit first? Or This is the argument that I've had internally in a biotech company as part of last year, but the, the problem is right now there are literally hundreds of, I mean, you and your wife know about this, but literally hundreds of products out there on the market for aging skin. Most of them probably do nothing. But there are products out there, and people buy them. If I came up with one more product that said I could make your skin that of a 20-year-old, one, people might well roll their eyes and say, sure, you can. But two, they'd buy them, but there are options. Why should they believe something that I claim? If I do the same thing for osteoarthritis, right now in the U.S. and Canada, the average cost of an ear replacement runs around $50,000. It's expensive. It's painful. It doesn't last forever. Give it a decade. But it's an option. So if I came to you and said, I've got a, a gene therapy that would prevent or reverse your osteoarthritis, you'd say, well, you're asking to experiment on me, but there are other things out there that everyone accepts as current standard of care. Expensive, painful, side, but yeah, but it's standard of care. 
So I think that not many people would raise their eyebrows or be excited by it. Uh, osteo, I mean, arth atherosclerotic disease, same problem. If I'm talking about heart disease, coronary artery disease, there are other products out there. Statins, for example. Mm -hmm. Never mind whether they're good or bad, but people would argue that, so what? What's new? There is nothing, zero, that effectively treats or prevents or reverses Alzheimer's disease. And for the past 20 years, we've been looking particularly at things like monoclonal antibodies for uh, beta amyloid precursor and even for things like tau proteins. Um, nothing has worked. There's no product that works. Um, so my argument would be, never mind the low-hiding fruit, because it would not impress anybody. And it's not the thing that scares people most. My argument would be, go for essentially the gold. That is, if, if, if I can put my money where my mouth is, my feeling is that I can probably prevent and cure essentially all of these age-related diseases. Go for the important one. Wow. <laughs> that mm. sounds fantastic. And, and If it's true. I mean, I always say that belief is one thing and, and, and logic is better, but data trumps everything. I need the data. So, so far, we've got good data for cells, good data for tissues, fair data for human studies, but we need good data. If I'm going to be able to do something about Alzheimer's, I should do it, not talk about it. Hence, not just write the next book, which I'm doing, but actually get the research going. So I will. Yeah, and, and we need big, good, solid data for something previously considered almost impossible. Mm -hmm to make that kind of perhaps psychology change that people can start seeing That's the it. impossible as a challenge rather than simply impossible and something we should avoid. Yeah, I think you're right. People naturally, and I think correctly, assume that you can't affect aging. And I say correctly only because that's the historical norm. You know, the oldest pe known piece of human literature, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and in the last chapter of that, they talk about a, a plant that grows underwater that could restore lost youth. Um, well, that whole idea has been around, I mean, I could quote science fiction, I can quote routine literature, movies. It's been around for 5,000 years now. And in every single case, it's been fiction. And at worst, it's actually been snake oil. Somebody's selling you something, they're making a profit on your credibility and your gullibility. So to say that we're going to reverse aging, I think people would be foolish to say, sure you can. The answer is, oh, right. Of course you can. You probably can't. Uh, um, no. What was it that, um, who was the astronomer, Carl Sagan? You know, remember he used to say that extraordinary claims need extraordinary data. I forget how he put it, but Evidence. that's true. Yeah, my take on this is I can write one more book, which I'll do, one more article, which I could do. No, we'll just do it. My personal answer to that is, is to say and point to another very ancient myth or legend, Daedalus and Icarus, okay. right? It's been given around for about, let's say, two and a half thousand years about hubris, the mm -hmm. human desire of flight and how it's, it's going to remain impossible. And it should be impossible because you see, then we get to fly too high and then we crash down and die eventually. Apparently, the, the Wright brothers were not very familiar or were not faced by that legend. Mm -hmm. And none of us is today. So a hundred years after the Wright brothers, Flight is, is common experience for m much of humanity, if not most of it. And so, yes, we had a legend which was warning us and was through, held through for two and a half, three thousand years until one day it wasn't. So I, I believe aging would be harder, but perhaps it may follow a similar pattern. Uh, you know, a minute ago, Nick, you mentioned the, the myth of Daedalus and Icarus. Um, there's another myth that comes up prominently that is important the way a lot of us look at aging, and that's the myth of Tithemus. 
Now, Tithonus was a mortal, yes. and he fell in love, right, with an immortal whose father was Zeus. So, Tith so, so the woman, what was That's her name? That's a platonic story, isn't it, from Plato? It is. So she went to her father and said, basically, Dad, I fell in love with Tithonus. He's immortal. Would you please make him immortal? And Zeus had a wicked sense of humor, I suppose, or, or just evil. And he said, sure, I'll make him immortal. But he didn't give him eternal youth. He gave him immortality. So Tithonus got older and older and older, but couldn't die. Um, and that scares all of us. And I'll come back to where you see that currently. Biologically, that can't happen, which is good. Um, the only way to make people, right now we're sort of up against the limit. It's sort of part of what's called the Gompertz curve. But you cannot make people live to be 200 unless you make them healthy, unless you actually reset aging. So you cannot live 100 more years in a nursing home. But where you see this is about a year and a half ago now, it was actually year four last, 2012, I think, the Pew Foundation did a study in the U.S. followed by one with CARP in Canada. And what they looked at was people's reaction to living longer. What they said was, if you could live an extra 40 years, would you do it? And people, not surprisingly, I think, interpreted that as, you're asking me an extra 40 years in the nursing home? God, no. Again, that can't happen, but that's a rational response. I don't want to live 40 more years in the nursing home with Alzheimer's either, nor can anybody afford it. But what if the question was, would you like an additional 40 years where you can play with the grandkids, play tennis, be healthy, not have aching knees, and remember your spouse's name? Take care of yourself, work in your garden, have a job, do what you'd like, cook. Would you like to essentially be healthy? Now, not everybody might like that, but it's a different question. I, I have very much trouble seeing how not everybody would like that, honestly. If, if, some, if God comes to you and, or anyone and says, I'll give you 40 years of youthful uh, health so that you can do and enjoy it's all the It's a Mrs. Johnson question. It's back to the, a lot of people would say that, but they don't act that way. They still dye their hair, they get Botox, they have stents put in, they take statins, they take Motrin, and yet they're saying they wouldn't do that, but they do. This reminds me of my, my argument about is aging a disease. A lot of biologists would say it's not a disease, and that's fine. It's sort of an arbitrary definition. And yet people act like, very much act like it's a disease. They treat aging like a disease. And then they tell me it's not. Okay. People aren't all that consistent. Now, let, let's go back again a little bit to the feasibility or the Good. effectiveness. Now, the other protagonist of the movie that I mentioned, The Immortalists, which is a fantastic documentary and I recommend everybody should watch it because it gives a very revealing and up close, very personal insight into the lives of two people who are very different from each other, Bill Andrews and Aubrey de Grey. But Aubrey in that movie, because Bill Andrews basically follows the, the, the proposed path of development that you propose with, with telomere lengthening and telomerase and so on. But Aubrey, in, in contrary uh, uh, view, he actually thinks that perhaps telomere lengthening would actually cause cancer rather than uh, delay aging. So what, what would you say uh, to that? Uh, let me start out by saying, well, the data doesn't support it, but let me start out by saying that, that a lot of people start with a very narrow, sort of blind man and the elephant. They start out with a very narrow perspective on a topic, and they stick with it. And that's human nature. Uh, Aubrey started out thinking about mitochondria. Not surprisingly, he's thinking about free radical damage, mitochondrial dysfunction. And it's what I think of as a wear and tear theory, reasonably enough. Because most people view aging as something that just happens. You get older, you fall apart, you rust. What do you expect? Because of wear and tear. The problem is that some cells and some organisms don't wear and tear, some do. Um, I'll give you an example of this. 
uh, you know, every cell in your body essentially comes from your mother. There's the sperm from your father. And so at, at, at time of fertilization, the ovum, let's say your mother was 30 years old when she had you, that ovum was already 30 years old, and she got it from her mother, another 30 years. I can track back that same exact cell line for perhaps three and a half, four billion years. So essentially, biologically, strictly speaking, every cell in your body is four billion years old. And it didn't age that whole time. Germ cell lines don't. A number of other cell lines don't. A lot of one-celled animals don't. So why is it that wear and tear didn't occur for four billion years and then suddenly did for a number of decades? The same thing happens with mitochondria. You know, mitochondria are estimated to enter the eukaryotic cell line about a billion and a half years ago, a little less. Um, so every mitochondria in your body is effectively a billion and a half years old. And if wear and tear, mitochondrial dysfunction, things fall apart, was the answer, why didn't it age for a billion and a half years and it suddenly did? It's not that mitochondria don't play a role in aging. It's not that free radicals don't. It's not that cosmic ray damage doesn't. But you have to account for the fact that sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. You can't just say, that causes it. You have to explain why it sometimes doesn't cause it. And um, Aubrey has always had a problem with that, and he has tended not to look beyond that. You know, the data that show that we can actually reverse aging in cells, tissues, and so on, Aubrey doesn't, let me put it bluntly, Aubrey doesn't read it. Um, he doesn't tend to look at it. He stays focused on the mitochondria. I understand that as human nature. People, they get involved in something, they don't want to look a little further and reconsider what they've been doing for a long time. You know, if I'm the blind man looking at the elephant's ear and you're the blind man looking at the elephant's trunk, we tend to look at each other as idiots. You need somebody to say, wait a minute, it's the ear and the tail and the trunk and the foot and the, it's all of these things together. And, you know, when I talk about the telomere theory of aging, it's not really telomeres. It has to do with trying to take all these pieces of the elephant and put them together. And for the last 20 years, it's the only way I know that you can put all these things, progeria, mitochondrial damage, free radical damage, um, you know, disposable soma theory. All of these things then begin to fit together and make a sort of coherent organic whole, and they work well. Still, I'm not interested in them as a philosophy or as, a, as an explanation theoretically. I want to find out where we can step in and, and change something. And I find most theories of aging are very nice, but they don't have a point of intervention. They don't have a, a theoretical point of testing. And as most people in science would point out, if you can't test it, that's not a scientific theory. It's a religion or a philosophy. Um, the nice thing about, again, the misnomer is telomere theory of aging, because it's not. It's cell senescence theory of aging, or it's more appropriately epigenetic, you know, change of gene expression theory of aging. It's a lot more than that, um, is that it's testable. And so far, everything we've tested has been true. Now let's look at the cancer part. The, if I look 20 years ago, it was called a double-edged sword. Uh, Judy Campisi first started talking about that. And the idea rationally was, why is there aging? And the thought was, aging is a way of, you've got telomere shortening, and it's a way of preventing cancer in cells before you reproduce. I won't get into the, the detail of it, but the thought was, if, if nature has a choice between making you live forever, but you might die of cancer before you reproduce, or being able to say, well, make sure you reproduce it, and after that, who cares? They'll go for the latter. So we have organisms, right. So the thought was you've raised your risk of cancer at the cost of, I mean, you've lowered your risk of cancer at the cost of aging. But it doesn't happen that way. For one thing, we find that if you re-extend the telomere, rather than increasing cancer, you actually make a more stable genome. So there's less DNA damage. Partly it's because we increase the rate of DNA repair. So it becomes much more constant, faster, damage doesn't stick around as long and, and create problems. 
Um, but the same thing happens when we look at the clinical results. Same thing. You find that people who have been on telomerase activators have what appears to be, so far, a lower risk of cancer. Same thing happens in cells. Same thing happens in tissues. So, so far, the answer is no. It looks like it's protective. Now, it's actually not that simple. Um, I'll give you a little of the details. I've got a, a, a graph of this I use when I teach this course about the biology of aging and how the cells work. But essentially what happens is if I have a really long telomere, the odds of my having cancer are really low. As it shortens, the odds go up a bit because the genome becomes more unstable. But when I get it low enough, the odds of cancer goes down because actually the, cancer, the cell no longer divides. So there is a sort of a high-risk part of this curve mm -hmm. where cancer is, is, is a risk. If I say to you, uh, if I re-extend your telomeres, do I cut your risk of cancer or not? The answer is, depends what you started with and how far you extend them. If I extend them all the way up to a normal length, in most cases, you cut the risk of clinical cancer enormously, almost certainly for theoretical grounds and partly on the basis of data. Um, but there are cases that can be made where you've got a, a low telomere or short telomere length and you extend it only minimally where you actually increase the risk. That could happen, theoretically. Data doesn't show far show that, but it's complex. I suspect that we will find that there is some risk. But so far, the data suggests there's lower risk increasing telomere length. And I think it's because the, you know, the reason you age is not because it's prevention of cancer. It's not double-edged sword. The reason you and I age is because it's, it, it, the, the shorter lifespan of a, of a species, the more rapidly it can adapt to a changing environment. Let me give you an example I use in my class. I have two islands, okay? Remember Jonathan Swift, the Struldbrugs? He actually had this story about not aging creatures, but it's similar to this. You've got two islands. In this island, we've got normal human beings. They have an average lifespan of 70 or something. Let's make it even shorter. Let's make it 10 years. They have an average lifespan of 10 years, and they reproduce at age 5. Over here, we've got human beings that genetically are exactly the same except for one major difference. They effectively live forever. Now, let's have 100,000 years go by, and let's change the environment. The environment's changed a lot over the last you know, 4 billion years on this planet. Enormous changes. We talk about changes now. There have been enormous changes. So let's just say that the, um, the average temperature goes up 10 degrees. Okay? This set of organisms, this set of humans over here, can't adapt. They live forever. The creatures that are there are very slow to adapt, if at all. These ones can adapt, because every 10 years, you're beginning to wipe out the offspring that didn't do well with the temperature change, and focus in, on the increased survival of the organisms that had slight differences. So essentially, when you're looking at evolution, sometimes mutations are good, and sometimes short lifespans are good, from the species perspective. As an individual, not so much. <laughs> but then, one of the philosophical arguments against defeating aging is precisely from a philosophical point of view, that mm -hmm. we should sort of overcome our own personal selfish desire to live forever and we should look beyond that to the interest of the species as a whole and and so for example overpopulation is one of the arguments that some people often quote by saying that what's good for us individually is bad for us as a civilization because as you see if we live forever we're going to have an overpopulation and we're going to consume the earth well, well let me start off by saying none of us will live forever you know you, you will annoy somebody in the subway and they'll shoot you um, but, but more seriously, I mean, none of us will live forever. Things will go wrong. None of our genes are perfect. And I think we can probably literally wipe out aging, but that's not the only thing that kills you. Um, think about the way you drive, maybe. But, or somebody who's a suicide bomber. But, you, you know, well, none, none of us will live forever. Um, but then you talk about the individual versus species, and it's always a critical issue. 
one of the things I've noticed in in dealing in having conversations with people, for example, uh, uh, had debates with zero population growth in Boston a few years ago. Um, one of the things I noticed first is that most of them don't realize that in fact population does tend to even out and come back to a, sh a lower level after a while. It's uncomfortable when you've got a high population for a while, but things already we see deceleration in the rate of population growth worldwide. Again, there are exceptions, and they're mostly though it's happened in some countries have a negative population growth, let alone rate of replacement. Um, but the other thing I notice, and I say this facetiously, but it's still true. It's well and good for you to say, well, you should think about the species, not yourself. But what I've noticed is the people who are most concerned about population growth are unwilling to say, I'll commit suicide to help. <laughs> okay. uh, well, uh, let, me, let me ask you this, though. Is there a falsif falsifiability um, uh, way that we can test your hypothesis mm -hmm. by Good. and if some kind of data or evidence comes to be then you will change your mind and you would say either uh, lengthening telomeres would be ineffective or we should look for an alternative way to, to do this because it's not going to work and maybe Hayflick and Aubrey will be right. How would you yes. consent to them? Yes and that's critical right? because as I said before if it's not falsifiable it's not science or medicine. You know, if I claim that I've got the perfect drug that cures cancer and it doesn't work, it doesn't work. It's just not making this claim. That's one of the differences between religion. You know, the world will end tomorrow, it didn't end tomorrow, will end the next day. Wait a minute, so you're saying you can't falsify it? No, you need, you need to falsify it. No, what I need to do is to show that I can, I can capably re-extend telomere lengths in the cells that I care about and that that has no effect on aging or age-related diseases. Um, now let me tell you a little more complexity. And my feeling is this. Let's say that I can take every cell in your body that I want to aim at and, and reset telomere lengths, which I think we could do. Um, I still think we're going to find that there are some problems. Um, they are going to be minor. I'll give you an example of one now. Um, let's say that I've got a, a cell in your body that is sort of a sociopath, not a cancer cell, but it's not doing its job. A typical definition of a cancer cell is one that doesn't do its job. It's sociopathic in a sense, but it keeps dividing, and that's the critical issue. It divides, it divides, it divides. And it's immortal, isn't it? Correct. Well, it doesn't even have to be that. It has to out-divide its rate of death. Okay? It could still be immortal, but in any case, leave it that it's immortal. If I have one sociopathic cell, one cancer cell, you never care. It's when you build them up that you end up with damage, death, disease, death. Um, but let's say that I've got cells that aren't dividing but they're not doing their jobs. And that happens all the time in a way. But let's say that it's not related to telomere length. So I've got one cell there that's got a long telomere, but because it's got a couple of glitches in the epigenetic pattern or in the actual inherited genes or gene damage, it's no longer performing its function. Now, if let's say I have a, a set of immune cells. Say I have a million immune cells, and of those, 1% don't work. And it's not related to aging per se, it's just because that cell's got some genetic damage. Now a couple more get genetic damage, and a couple more get genetic damage. There would come a point where, say, 50% of those immune cells don't work because of cosmic rays that didn't get repaired optimally over time. The answer is, as I say, we're all going to die. And if I can reverse aging, I probably can extend the human lifespan by several hundred years. But that doesn't mean you become immortal. There probably are kinds of damage that aren't, strictly speaking, related to aging because your body is not 
perfect repairing. It's a subtle difference, but it's a critical one. It's, you, know, you will not live forever. And you're saying the proof is in the pudding also. If, if oh, the is. changes that you induce via telomere lengthening do not provide uh, the results that you're hoping for, then apparently it would not work. Yeah, I'll give you two examples of this. Uh, you know, 20 years ago, Cal Harley turned to me at his office one day at Jaren and said, if he had a drug right now to reverse aging, or I mean to reset telomere length, would I take it? And my answer was, no, you take it for a year and I'll watch, see how things go, and I'll think about it. <laughs> because you could be careful. Um, all of us do. But, you know, the, the other example is last year the BBC said to me, if these drugs you know, worked, how would you know it? And I said, hard to tell, because I gotta tell you, if I'm still alive at 150 and perfectly healthy, I still won't be convinced this isn't the placebo effect, but the odds have gone up, you know? Uh, no, it, it's hard to prove things, but there comes a point where, as Thoreau said, when you've got a trout in the milk, you know, it's hard to think it just grew there. It, something's going on. Same thing here, if, you can, if I can show that I can reverse six cases of Alzheimer's, I've made my point. Yeah, that would be absolutely amazing, that's for sure. That would be a point to make. Because no one's done it. Yes, that, that, that would be earth-shattering in, 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 in many communities. Uh, now, let me ask you a little bit more on the practical end of things, because you said your motivation is a practical rather than philosophical one, uh, and that's to intervene and to improve people's lives. What can we tell to our audience right now, perhaps from your extensive knowledge, that may improve their chances of a long and healthy life in terms of perhaps supplements that you could recommend, practices, anything of practical value, tips of a sort? Do you do anything of that yourself, etc.? Let me say that, first I'll make a bold statement that's not quite true. There is nothing you can do right this moment that reverses or stops human aging, okay? We know of three things that affect aging. Uh, caloric restriction, we all should eat less, true. Um, two, you can breed animals to have longer or shorter lifespans, doesn't help you and I, you already chose your parents, you got what you got. <laughs> the third is genetic interventions of various sorts, including things like telomere alteration. Um, at the moment, the best advice it has nothing to do with aging, it's just good health advice. Uh, you could talk about an optimal diet, exercise, uh, meditation, stress. I mean, you can go on and on about things that we should fasten your seatbelt. Don't antagonize people who are violent. And all of those are true. None of them have much sex appeal. I mean, your doctor told you those things. You didn't pay attention. Your grandmother told you those things. She cost less than your doctor, and you still didn't pay attention. And many, many of us do those things. I mean, we try to eat a reasonable diet. Let me say that there is no magic supplement, magic diet, magic food. There is no bad food and good food, they're in context. It's like I can take cyanide, small amounts, I'm fine. Mercury, small amounts, I'm fine. But you take a little bit more, you're in trouble, okay? I could take water, which is perfectly good. Take too much, I'm in trouble. It's a matter of context. Your body can handle a certain amount of damage, can handle a certain amount of, of malnutrition or bad nutrition, not just not having enough, but not having, for example, vitamin B12. You can get away with that a little bit, but not a lot. So what you need is a diet that is reasonable, not sexy, it doesn't sell diet books, but it's still the sort of thing we've all known we should be eating. Um, and yet, there's so many fads out there. For example, for the last couple of, oh, we'll call it five decades, seven decades, we've all thought that a low-fat diet was good. Well, within limits, yes, but there's not a lot of good data that shows that a high dietary cholesterol leads to a high serum cholesterol. We tend to assume that that's true, but the data is actually shaky. 
let alone showing that it causes heart disease. I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm saying the data is not nearly what people think it is. The same for a lot of other things. Most people think that exercise will uh, lower your risk of aging fast. Well, a lot of the data is, again, back to correlation, association. It's not causation. It, we find that people who exercise tend to live longer, but that doesn't prove the exercise made them live longer. It may be that having good genes made them live longer and also made them more prone to want to go out and exercise because they felt good. I'm not saying it's true. I'm saying the data is sometimes shaky. So, yes, we probably should exercise. Yes, we should eat good diets. Yes, we probably should do something about our stress levels, hence the garden. Um, <laughs> but, you know, none of that necessarily will, none of that will prevent aging. None of that will reverse aging. It might slow it only in the sense of people who don't do those things are going to age faster. It doesn't really slow aging. It just doesn't make it go faster. You do bad things. You go out in the sun all day you're going to have increased skin aging. Stay in the shade, you'll have slower skin aging. All what about resveratrol? It's been kind of... Shaky data. Yeah, hard for me to come up with a hard and fast statement. One, I don't know the data as well as I'd like to. Two, the data I've seen just doesn't prove what I'd like it to prove either way. So I'll just leave it at that. I'm not sure. I suspect it's not nearly what it's cracked up to be. It's certainly, I think what you'd, I'd have to argue, it's what's called a downstream effect. Um, you know, if I try to, if I take an Ebola patient, Ebola patients, one of the classic things they've got is a fever, okay? Um, I could treat fever, fine. I lower your fever just fine. That doesn't mean you're not going to die of Ebola. Same thing when I look at Alzheimer's. You could say, well, classically, they've got high beta, you know, problem with these, uh, with their beta amyloid precursor proteins. Well, but when I actually go in and try to intervene, it doesn't seem to prevent the Alzheimer's disease. And I think the same is true of a lot of things like resveratrol. It, it may have a beneficial effect, but it doesn't have the effects we need. Uh, the classic example for me back 10, 15 years ago was growth hormone. Um, growth hormone has some benefits in certain cases for certain people. There's zero evidence it affects aging. doesn't mean it doesn't have some benefits for some people sometimes, but it doesn't affect aging. Same thing is probably true as resveratrol. I think that the effects it has are probably limited and downstream. But still, you know, there's room for more data. Michael, Show yes me the data. Yesterday, uh, on the way to coming to visit you in your house, we stopped at the Cryonics Institute near mm -hmm. Detroit. And uh, I had an interview with David Ettinger, who is the son of uh, Robert Ettinger, who wrote the, 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 the original book in 1963 that started the, basically the field or the idea of cryonics. Uh, let me ask you, what's your take on cryopreservation? Um, years ago, I'd go to meetings and I found that a lot of my time, my role was translation between uh, scientists and physicians, for example. The scientists would be saying, what do you mean Motrin? What does that do? Or non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And the, the doctors would say, what's a southern blot? And my background always was in both camps when I could translate. Um, and I think that part of what's going on in cryonics is that people don't have a good feel for the medicine involved. Uh, and now there are two parts of cryonics that are a question. One is, will we ever get around, say you've got cancer, terminal cancer. And in cryonics, I might save your body or I might save your just head. First question is, will we be able to uh, cure the cancer ultimately? I mean, in 10 years, we've got a cure for that cancer. The second question is, can we get you back? Um, now, if what you've done is just save the head, my thought is, boy, that's going to be hard for a number of reasons. 
not only do I have to clone a whole new body, but what's left in the way of functional neurons that have coded your soul, your personality, you, that I can get back. Pretty low odds, but as you already pointed out, everybody thought you couldn't fly to the right mothers got there. Okay, so show me the data. Um, so I think that the medically speaking, we may be able to cure a lot of those diseases, but I'm not sure it will help people who have undergone chronic preservation. Still, let's see what the Wright brothers do. Like, and, and also, speaking of the odds, I mean, I agree entirely with you that it's very low odds, but what are the alternatives? Right. Right, so the alternative is a guaranteed death. Yeah, this, so, I mean, so right low now, odds of, of oh, sure. upside of coming back sure. versus guaranteed nothingness forever. So I, I personally will go for oh, the low odds anytime. I understand. I understand. Um, I mean, this another example would be something like this. Say I've got, uh, you know, right now there are several hundred studies still going on. I think it's 700 last I counted. Worldwide on Alzheimer's disease, various places trying various things, many of them still monoclonal antibodies. And so far the answer has been none of them worked. Now let's say that you come to me and I've got early Alzheimer's and you say you've got something that's a monoclonal antibody that's going to grab my uh, beta amyloid precursor in a different way than any other one. And I personally would think, right, that's not going to work either. But what else have I got right now? So I would take it. I had somebody I knew very closely, uh, very well, who had uh, amyotropic lateral sclerosis, Lou Gehrig disease. And there was no treatment for this 20 years ago. Um, not much now. And somebody offered him snake venom therapy. And he asked me what I thought of that. I said, not much. I don't think it's going to work. But were I in your shoes? I do it too. Why? Because what else do you have? No, I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, if it came to chronic preservation and it and your life means that much to you that you're worth trying it, I understand it. I might not do it, but I understand the implica the the impulse to do it. Mm -hmm. Understandable, human. And what's your sort of a more general take on the on the sort of trans the idea for transhumanism? That because that's so many things to so many people these days. Absolutely, so. it's it's very hard to to define mm. it, and perhaps we should try and be a little more specific. To me personally, transhumanism literally means beyond human. That is to say, mm -hmm. using science and technology to overcome our limitations, which we've been doing which, for which, in a way, I could say we've been transhumanists. Of like we are dressed, we are wearing clothes, we're not naked, like nature created us. We, I have contact lenses, we're using cameras to record this mm -hmm. interview, you're drinking a coffee of a cup of tea, I mean of a, of a cup we've produced with our intelligence through science and technology, right? So everything around us is in a way transhumanist, you could say, mm -hmm. but so. Okay, so one of the definitions I've seen, or not definitions maybe, but the central themes of transhumanism in the last, say, decade was the idea that you be able to upload your personality, your mind, to a computer, or in any case, get it out of an organic body. That's one key one I see, and there are others. Um, and with that as an example, and others like it, my thought is, again, let's see what the Wright brothers do. So. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, we, we have a very diverse community, and, and I'd say the mind uploading is one of the very, very far off things, perhaps very far off in, in my view right now. But but at least in, in the short term, range, you know, we could attempt many of the things that you, you're discussing with telomere lengthening. Uh, I mean, and uh, the transhumanist community is one of the first to embrace the, the desirability uh, of that idea. So in that sense, I think it's, 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 it's a very supportive, uh, and it's a good thing to have people like that who are open and consider those worthy of, of doing.
I think you're right. Uh, you know, one of the things that I notice about a number of people involved in things like that is their ability to picture things that, that other people think are impossible. Now, most people know that you cannot reverse aging. I know that you can. I don't know that I can as effectively as I'd like to, but I know it's doable. Um, the question is, how, how doable? I know it's doable to some extent. Is it doable practically for people with Alzheimer's? Different question. I think it is. I'll find out. But most people would perfectly rationally say, nonsense. That's total nonsense. That's snake oil. That's, what are you thinking? Um, and that, I think that's true of a lot of things with regard to transhumanists, too. They'll often come up with a position where everybody knows it can't be done, and the answer is, maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. Let's try it out. I gave a Show talk. me the data, as you'd Show like to say. You know, I, I, I classically gave a talk at the National Institute of Health 20 years ago, and what I did was I, I got up and I was talking about reversing human aging, and I knew they weren't going to believe me. So I said, before I start, let me say, one, anybody who leaves here in an hour and thinks you can reverse aging is naive. But two, anybody who leaves here now and thinks you cannot reverse aging is equally naive. If you are sensible, you'll say to yourself, where's the data? So let me show you the data. Because that's the issue. It's not a question of whether you think you can reverse aging or not. The question is, where's the data? Show me the data. Michael, we've been talking to you for close to an hour by now. And while I'm enjoying this tremendously, I have to say, unfortunately, we are coming towards the end of our interview. So the second last question that I always ask of my guest is, what's the best place for people to find more about you and your work? Um, there's a book, actually, Telomerase Therapy. Um, it's a working title. Probably the book I have coming out next year with Ben Bella Books. Um, I wrote it to be a summary of everything that's gone on up to date for now. Right now, um, they'd probably be best to go and take a look at Reversing Human Aging, a book I put out 20 years ago, but I just issued a, an e-book version of it last year, just it was out there. The best would be my textbook on this with Oxford University Press, but it's meant for academics. It's probably unreadable. Um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's just very stuffy and very academic. Very good book, but not approachable for most people. Um, so it's got some 4,700 references. It's turgid. It's academic. Yeah, I so, think maybe 40% of the thickness of the book, of the, the textbook, is pretty much references. Or more like 60, but yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's referenced. Um, I'm using it as a textbook now, and I had to warn my students the first three chapters, don't take them all that seriously. We'll do better as we get into the clinical areas. Um, so no, I would say either Reversing Human Aging as an e-book, um, or the, the book I have coming out next year, which should bring us up to date on everything in the last 20 years, for example, including the personalities including things like Bill Andrews and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, Bill says hi, by the way. I interviewed him a few weeks ago, and he, he says hi to you. Bill is a delight. He's out doing the work at the very edge of it. Uh, Bill wasn't sure any of this was doable back 20 years ago, and I sort of talked him into it at a conference in Italy one day, uh, and he got it, the idea that it's a matter of not just damage, but your ability to repair damage that makes all the difference, and it's being able to keep up with the damage. And he's gone after it hook, line, and sinker, but... It's a tough road to hoe. I mm -hmm. wish him luck. I've always told him that that approach was the most elegant of the three major approaches. Um, he's had problems getting it to work out both financially and technically. I'm going after the third approach, which I think is the clunkiest, but it appears to be technically maybe more doable right now. We'll see. Well, I, I wish you guys both good luck. Uh, and quite honestly, for the vast majority of us, it doesn't matter whether you or Bill or Aubrey or anyone is right. What matters is, to make it work. <laughs> well, this is what Bill and I have said. You know, it, whether you know whether he does it, I do it, or somebody else does it, we just want somebody to do it. Because for one thing, 
there is nobody in your audience who doesn't know somebody who's got Alzheimer's or has had Alzheimer's, for example. It's pretty universal. None of us want that to happen to us or people we love. Now, there's a good reason to do this. This is not an academic issue. This is a personal issue for all of us. Actually, this brings me to another question which I should have asked you a, a little while ago, and that's what's the biggest misconception that you have to deal with most commonly when it comes to reversing aging and that's really annoying you and that you perhaps want to kind of close once and for all? Well, it, it has to do with the fact that aging is dynamic. It's not static. You know, most people think, for example, that aging is caused by damage. No, aging is caused because your body permits the accrual of damage, which is different. It's a dynamic concept. Your body is continually repairing things, and it's not a matter of you got damage that stays forever. Your body is continually saying, oh, there's a damage, fix it. Oh, there's another piece of damage, fix it. That's not just the number of cosmic rays you got hit with, your number of free radicals. It's free radicals and cosmic rays versus repair and, and recycling. So it's a very hard concept because it's slippery. And the analogy I gave you was, it, it's like, if we go back a hundred and some years ago, and we're in a little village, and I drive into town with the very first automobile. And there's an old guy sitting there at the general store who says, what is that? Where's the horse? And I say, actually, this is an internal combustion engine. It doesn't need a horse. It's got pistons, runs on gas. There's a cycle. It goes through the shaft here. It turns the wheels. And the guy says, I get this. This is fascinating. But it still leaves one question, which is, where's the horse? <laughs> and I find this with aging. People will say, oh, I see that. It's a cruel of damage. But where's the horse? And they still have this idea that aging is a static phenomenon. Uh, I see this with Len Hayflick, for example. Len will use, bless his heart, he'll use the analogy of a satellite. They'll say you put a satellite in outer space, it gets damaged. What do you expect? But we are not pieces of machinery. If we were, I would take my Ford and your Chevy in the morning that have gotten together and made a Volvo and repaired themselves overnight. Cars don't do this. Cars are mechanical. You and I are not. We are entirely dynamic, we're entirely biological, we are repairing and recycling at every moment. What happens with aging is we fall behind. But certain cells, like germ cells, don't. So the question is, can we do this? Again, people tend to assume that no matter what I say, it can't be done or that aging is static. It's not. It's dynamic and the answer is so far we probably can. So that's perhaps a fantastic point to bring our interview to a close, but let me give you another chance to perhaps fine-tune or add to, to that message that aging is a dynamic phenomenon. What's the most important thing? Is that the most important thing or what, what is the most important thing that you would like our viewers and listeners to take away from this conversation with you today? Compassion. The reason to do this is not to double somebody's lifespan. The reason to do this is because people out there are hurting, they are frightened, they are terrified with things that happen to them, they get disease. The reason to do this is because we're human and we should be working at this. It's not playing God, it's working at being human. It's compassion. It's not a matter of living longer. It's a matter of making people healthy again. Different thing. Michael Fossil, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today. Mine too, Nick. Thanks. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Mark.